Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. David Berlinski will join us to discuss the king of infinite space. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the principles of geometry that are familiar to most of us are derived from perhaps the most influential text in Western mathematics, Euclid's Elements. But how did these fundamental principles of geometry come to be realized, and how did Euclid's own personality influence his insights? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. David Berlinski. Dr. Berlinski is the noted best selling author of works such as Infinite Ascent and The Advent of the Algorithm. His latest work, The King of Infinite Space, Euclid and His Elements, explores the development of geometry and the man behind it, Euclid. And Dr. Belinsky, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it's my pleasure entirely. Thank you for inviting me. It's certainly our pleasure. It's certainly a fascinating book, The King of Infinite Space, that you've written, in which you talk about Euclid and, and the development of geometry. An interesting topic, but how did you yourself become interested in uh, writing a book about this? The, the real truth? <laughs> the hidden <laughs> truth. I had a wonderful high school course in geometry, oh, many, many years ago, and it stayed as a fixed point in my memory. It was really a wonderful experience because a, 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 a lucky accident, I had a superb teacher, a woman who had been teaching geometry for many, many years. She took absolutely no nonsense from a class of high-strung adolescents. And we went through uh, a whole year together. And for the, the next 40 or 50 years, I, I always said to myself, you know, I've got to write about that. In some way, I've got to convey what was at the age of 15 a really magical experience. That is the origin of the book, the real origin of the book. And, of course, all through my later life, I was fascinated by Euclidean geometry, the role that it played, the influence that that book has had. But uh, if, if I cast my own mind backwards, I remember Mrs. Mays in the Bronx High School of Science and uh, sophomore year geometry. Everyone had to take it, by the way. It was an obligatory course. And except um, there were maybe 10 or, or 15 students who didn't like it, but the rest of us just loved it. Well, it certainly sounds like your experience with geometry was different from, I think, most most of ours. Oh, it's so much better than algebra. <laughs> oh, boy, I hated algebra. I thought it was just such a supremely nasty subject. I could never understand it <laughs> in high school. So so why is it, do you think, that geometry has such power that, that it does, I think, over your imagination or maybe the, the imaginations of others who are interested in it? Because it's so intimately tied with the human eye and what the human eye sees and how it recognizes things. 
And that tie-in affects how we appreciate art and architecture. And that is one of the two fundamental dimensions of human experience. The other is intimately tied, I think, with the beating of the human heart. They have very different kind of experiences. The eye sees things in two or three dimensions, and the heart beats in one dimension. Blah, 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 blah. But if the heart gives rise to arithmetic, the eye gives rise to geometry. So these are subjects that are, are really deep in human experience. They're not peripheral. They're not incidental. And I think that explains a lot. You cannot look at a building, and you cannot look at almost any work uh, in the Western artistic tradition without very forcibly being reminded of the connection not only to geometry but to Euclid himself. So that's a profound, a profound kind of attraction. And I think, I think uh, many people recognize that. They feel it instinctively. They may not be able to say exactly what the nature of the connection is because it's a complicated subject. But none, nonetheless, it is there, and it gives rise to all sorts of very, very interesting distinctions, very, very profound kind of meditations, Euclidean geometry, art, and architecture. That's the kind of geometry one doesn't really, really see in the biological world, which is very different. A tree, for example, is not a Euclidean object, kind of great bushy thing out there. But there's no natural Euclidean form to capture the tree. So you see, uh, I mean, cascading distinctions emerge very naturally from this subject. It counts for some of its importance and its influence. Do you think there's something about the Euclidean shapes that are inherent uh, in terms of resonating with the, the mind itself? I do. Yeah. I do. I, I mean, I, I say I do. That's, that's um, more or less an affirmative grunt because uh, to make that argument real and substantial is, I think, beyond my powers, but also beyond anyone else's powers. But it's, it seems to me a very good, a very leading, a very suggestive hypothesis that, that Euclid is as great as he is, and Euclidean geometry is as important as, as it is, because these are not accidental, adventitious, or incidental shapes. They're fundamental to the human mind. And I don't know how I would go about showing that in a really constructive and intelligible way, but I think it's true nonetheless. So do you think Euclid's great insight was then taking this notion of, of objects that perhaps are intrinsic to all of us and codifying it in a way in, in, in his geometry? Yes, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, codifying it in a very special way. It's not just that Euclid had a list of results. This is true, that's true, isosceles triangles, the base angles, the equal Pythagorean theorem, that sort of thing. Um, he saw that in order to make that clear, transparent, and persuasive, he would very literally have to invent a whole way of life. And that's the way of life built around the idea of a proof, a formal mathematical demonstration. And he did that too. And together, that is an almost miraculously sophisticated development of a subject from its inception almost to its maturity at the hands of one man. It's quite, quite remarkable. Don't forget, Euclid lived in the, in the 4th and 3rd century B.C., and that he saw both things, the importance of geometry, the importance of the eye, and the importance of the mind in grasping geometrical shapes, and the correlative importance of constructing a way of life to explore these things. That is one of the great achievements of the human race. There's no question in my mind about that. 
So most of us are familiar with Euclidean geometry, but most of us aren't familiar with Euclid himself. What is known about him as an as a individual? And it, it's one of those um, tantalizing questions because the, the historical answer is very, very little. A few fragmentary suggestions. He seems to have been kind and helpful as a teacher, for example. You see that here and there, but not a word by his contemporaries. This is a, a matter of later recollections. In the case of Euclid as a, as a figure, as an artistic figure, all that we can do is look at the elements and try to say something about the aspect and structure of his own mind. And that's not impossible. After all, we do that all the time. We, we, we do not necessarily demand the biography of Shakespeare in order to say something about Shakespeare's mind. And we have to do the same thing uh, with respect to Euclid. And what we can say is that he was very guarded. He certainly didn't fill up the elements with personal revelations of a word about his life in, in the elements. He was uh, very contained, very powerful, very independent. And there is, as an aspect of his personality, a certain kind of austerity which comes across very clearly. You know, you look at the elements and you really see um, an intellect who does not want to waste words, does not want to spend a whole lot of time. The kind of explanation that, I'd say, a 20th or 21st century textbook would find uh, absolutely imperative. Euclid doesn't do that. He is very succinct, very terse, very trenchant. He gets to the point, and then when he's made his point, he just moves on. And that, that is what we have to go on. <laughs> one, of the, one of the great founding personalities of the Western tradition. And we cannot say a whole lot more than that. And that's a limitation, but it's also a mystery, and it's also very tantalizing. But certainly the sort of personality you would you would expect would come up with something like the Euclidean geometry of B1, which would be a personality that would want to get right to the point. Maybe. I, I'm not, I mean, I always, uh, you, you go through these kind of imaginative exercises. If I had that kind of mathematical power, that scope, and I, I wrote a book like that, boy, I'd be on every page. I'd be stuffing my opinions into every single demonstration. And... I, I suspect many other mathematicians would do the same thing. They would not be able to control themselves as adroitly as Euclid did. But uh, these, these are very mysterious aspects of, of the mathematical and the literary personality. It can't say for sure exactly what his motivations may have happened to be. I, I don't know them. No one else does. He certainly kept a lot. Uh, he, he could, let's put it this way. He kept his cards very close to his vest as a personality. Um, so, since Euclid's time, there's been the advent of several uh, non-Euclidean geometries, a uh, realization that the simplest form is not necessarily always the ones that can describe nature. What is it that you think this then says about the nature of what he has described as a geometry and, and what uh, the nature of the the world is and as far as being able to be described mathematically? Or that, that, That's a good, but it's a, it's a very difficult question. Um, it's certainly true that there are consistent and interesting non-Euclidean geometries. And it's also true that in physics, especially with Einstein's work on general relativity, we know very well that they can be put to extremely important uses. That's important. Obviously, it's important. So in one respect, Euclid was wrong, and then Kant, the German philosopher, was wrong after him because they both believed that these were necessary foundations for thought. They're not. We can not easily, but with a certain amount of uh, accommodation, reject, say, the fifth axiom that Euclid offers and substitute its negation. But there is an anterior claim that may be just as important 
if you think that Euclid was not writing to describe the physical world, after all, there was not really a subject like mathematical physics in the 4th century B.C., but he was writing to describe the structure of human experience and what the human eye can reveal, then it's not clear to me that there are real alternatives to the Euclidean vision. After all, in the space we inhabit, the surface of the earth, the way we carry on ordinarily, the way our minds work, Euclid's axioms don't seem to be easily falsifiable in any obvious way. You can falsify them by changing the definitions or changing the definition of distance, for example, and you can create models that look, oh, as if they would satisfy the negation of one of Euclid's axioms, but the structure does not really correspond exactly as Kant suggested to what we intuitively and automatically take as the structure of our experience. That's something quite different. And here I think the, the claims of Euclidean geometry are, again, very powerful. It is the natural geometry of human experience, and as far as I know, animal experience as well. So that is something. I don't think the, the non-Euclidean geometries, although they are very important, you rightly observe, play quite the same role in the, in the drama of the human imagination as Euclidean geometry. It's something a little different. So because of its real tie to intuitive about how we experience the I think world. so, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think that's exactly right. And so then has resulted in influencing how we then construct our own world by basing our designs on... Precisely on, so, yeah. precisely so. I mean, you can go through the history of architecture, which is really three-dimensional Euclidean geometry, and you can see very clearly, make it a, a very simple kind of case, which would have to be refined, that a building is either Euclidean or it involves a deformation of Euclidean geometry in some way. And there doesn't seem to be a third way as far as buildings go, which is very interesting. I mean, the whole classical civilization, as far as its architecture and urban planning, was severely Euclidean. They used those forms uh, in the 20th century because of tremendous advances in, in structural engineering. We can violate some of those forms. But inevitably, when you see a Euclidean form violated, you don't see, well, that's an interesting new form. You say, well, that's a Euclidean form that's been deformed in some way. That's true, for example, of all of Frank Gehry's buildings, uh, like the Bilbao Museum, the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. Well, it's just a fundamentally Euclidean building, and because of structural advances, uh, there's some deformations involved, but nothing radically different, which is a limitation of the art of architecture. It also appears in painting, exactly the same kind of limitations. If you look at certain 19th century works, for example, you see people chasing to uh, burst the boundaries of Euclidean experience. And when you come to Cubism, Picasso or Brock or any of the Cubist masters, what you see is uh, a very deliberate attempt to violate a Euclidean perspective. But in the end, it looks very ge geometric, and it looks geometric in just that interesting way. It's a violation, a deformation of Euclidean geometry. Do you think that because Euclidean geometries are so fundamental to human experience, in, in some ways we take it for granted as, as being just the, the nature of how we see the world? Yes, I think, I think that's a, a superb point. I think it's absolutely true. We take it for granted, just as a fish takes it for granted that he's surrounded by water. Uh, it, it's, it's the air we breathe, the water we, we see. It's the nature of our experience. And there's no way to clamber out of that experience to see it from a different perspective. After looking at history of Euclid and development of, of the elements, what really are the things that kind of strike you that probably want to impart to, to people about the development of the geometry? I think the most important thing is that this is a great historical and intellectual monument. 
and it should be treated exactly like we would treat or as we would treat any other historical and intellectual monument, the development of the sonata form, the development of the symphony, development of uh, certain kinds of pictorial representation, um, development of certain political systems. All of these, these, these are great achievements. We should recognize them exactly for what they are, uh, things that are profoundly worthy of respect. That's the impression I'd, uh, I would like the reader to take away from my book. Of course, it, w it would be even better if after purchasing my book, he would go back to the elements. Uh, well, it's always good to go back to the primary source. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, your new book is, again, called The King of Infinite Space, Euclid and His Elements. Uh, the author is uh, Dr. David Berlinski. And uh, Dr. Berlinski, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure entirely. Thank you for inviting me. And you were just listening to Dr. David Berlinski discussing the, the King of Infinite Space. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. If I can reach the stars, pull one down for you, shining on my heart, so you could see the truth, then this love I have I'll be
Alright, it's time to play our game. The Grokatron 5000 is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, what Euclidean shape would they be? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know uh, if they were a Euclidean shape, or which shape would they be, and, uh, and a little reason why. Dr. Blinsky, you ready to play the game? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, person number one, uh, which shape would he be? It's uh, the real estate mogul, Donald Trump. Donald Trump? Yes. Mm, I would suggest a perfect square. Bounded on, on, on all sides equally. <laughs> equally limited, equally bounded on four sides. <laughs> yes. Perhaps a perfect square colored yellow. <laughs> yellow, why is Just that? for sheer vulgarity. <laughs> All right. Number two, uh, which shape would he be? It's the uh, the new pope, Pope Francis. Uh, I mean, now you have me at, at disadvantage because I know nothing about the new pope, except that he comes from South America. I'm going to go with, with the, the most enigmatic of Euclidean shapes, that is a circle. No, that's my fault, because I, I, I simply don't know enough. <laughs> okay, well, we're all learning, I suppose, about him and see see what happens. Uh, number three, uh, which uh, shape would he be? It's uh, the physicist Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Uh, I, I would suggest a straight line, a straight line representing both uh, the uh, extent of his reach, because Euclidean lines are infinite in extent, and his limitations, um, an inspiring kind of combination. But then straight lines are very inspiring in Euclidean geometry because they keep going. Simple but uh, infinite. Yes. Well, number four, it's the golfer Tiger Woods. Oh, the golfer Tiger Woods. I know about him, as much about him as I do about the Pope. <laughs> um, wasn't he involved in some sort of scandal? Really oh, pressing my knowledge here. Uh, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods. Uh, uh, can I pass on Tiger Woods? Sure, we could pass on. We could pass on him. All I all I vaguely remember about Tiger Woods is reading something in the papers about a scandal. <laughs> I, for, I forget the details. Well, that's probably good news for him that the uh, scandal has gone uh, to the background there. <laughs> a rhomboid, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right, well, we'll skip to number five. Uh, finally, what Euclidean shape would he be? It's the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama, let me think. I would I would go with a rectangle. No, no, I change it. If, if I, I may be allowed to change my mind. A triangle. Triangle. He rises to a point in the presidency. The question is, what kind of triangle? Is it squat and low, isosceles, or profoundly elongated? <laughs> I'll leave that as a tantalizing open question of my own. Well, uh, I guess we have to see to what heights that triangle will rise. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we sure do. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dr. Belinsky, I want to thank you for uh, sticking around playing our game. And again, uh, your new book is called The King of Infinite Space, Euclid and His Elements. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Thank you.